If you don't have your own Bible, there's one in the chair in front of you. If you would take it out, it'll be easier for you to follow along in the message. In Matthew chapter 24, for those of you who have your own copy of God's Word, verses 29 to 51. Ready or not, <clears throat> here I come. Now that was meant for the message. Not, I got to think, you might think I was talking about myself. No, that's the message. But I did wake up this morning. I, I, I wake up quite a bit. But one of the thoughts that came to me is I was going to call Dean Smith. You know, he's a pilot. And I was going to have him, and I don't know if we have flight attendants here, but I was going to have him stand up right before I got up to speak and say, please fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> Uh, as we get ready to take off here. So, Matthew 24, so much to cover. I hope you have had a happy childhood. I hope you can look back over the years and, and uh, just remember a mom and hopefully a dad, brothers and sisters, where there is joy and harmony in the home. My heart always breaks for those who don't. And most of the people I ministered to in prison don't have a uh, happy upbringing in their family. Uh, I was raised in that kind of home where I just have nothing but to praise the Lord for. Daddy was a railroad executive with the old B&O Railroad. And mom was the one that just kept the pulse of the home with seven children now, that picture was taken back in 1945. Whoa. Isn't that little fellow on the right just the cutest little three-year-old you've ever seen? I mean, he is such a darling. And you know, as he grew up, he became a very handsome man, too. And, uh, but that's, that's my family. And uh, you can see on my right, there's my brother John. John was uh, 18 months older than I. Uh, my oldest brother in the middle, who's with the Lord now, was just in the army at the end of World War II. That was taken in 40, 1945 and is with the Lord. But, um, so John and I were especially close, and we grew up in a place in Pittsburgh, and uh, Daddy and Mom bought a, a house with a huge yard. And, of course, we were outside just all the time. And the yard was connected to a place called Levine Woods. Now, that's just a place where little boys love to play. And what we used to play so often um, was cowboys. And as you might, well, you don't know my brother, so you wouldn't know it, but uh, he was always played the good guy. So he was Hopalong Cassidy. You don't even know who I'm talking about unless you're <laughs> in another generation. He was Leish LaRue and Roy Rogers. And I know it surprises you, but I was Billy the Kid. <laughs> Jesse James were a member of the Dalton Gang. Um, and so we had a little game, and the bad guy, that would be I, uh, I would get a head start and, and, and run off to the woods. And then John would have to count out loud up to 50. One. Two, and then at the end of 50, he would say this, ready or not, finish it. Here I come. 
And uh, that's how we played. The, it, it wasn't the um, most sophisticated game in the world, but that's the way it went, and we had a lot of fun with it. That statement, ready or not, here I come, can also refer to the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, has great and powerful implications for the last days. So the title for this morning's message, Ready or Not, Here I Come, is entitled that because that exactly is what happens here in Matthew 24, uh, verses 29 to 51. It's a text that deals with the great climactic, glorious, and unexpected event known as the second coming of Christ. So we're going to go to our text, and you recall from last week, if you were with us, that Jesus is answering the question. So he has left the temple area where he says the temple's going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left on top of another. And this magnificent city, the holy city of God, Jerusalem, is going to be destroyed. And then he walks up the, to the Mount of Olives, and as he's seated there, Four of his disciples, John, Peter, James, and Andrew, come to him. And they say, Lord, when shall these things be? That is, the destruction of the temple and the city. And what shall be the sign of your coming, even of the end of the age? Now, Jesus answered both questions, but Matthew only records the answer to the second question. So if you want the answer to the first question, then you would have to go to a parallel passage written by uh, Dr. Luke. And he answers that in, in uh, chapter 21. Now, you know, remember last week we said there were 10 general signs that he said would precede his second coming. The question would be, what shall be the sign of that coming, which obviously will bring about the end of the age? So he begins answering that, and he gives 10 general signs. But right in the middle, he gives a very specific, more powerful sign than the other nine. In chapter 15 of chapter, 20, chapter 24, verse 15, he says, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, that's the sign to get out of Jerusalem, because all hell is going to break loose upon the Jewish people. And they well knew exactly what that was. And as we said, that's the time when the man of sin, the son of perdition, known as the Antichrist, sets himself up in the temple of God, and he demands that the world, and especially the Jewish people, worship him. And so the great persecution that now is going to come upon not only the Jewish people, but the entire world as well. Now, if we're going to understand this passage, I mentioned last week, we need to examine current events in light of biblical prophecy. Do not read biblical prophecy into current events. If you do, you will get in trouble, and a lot of people have. So make sure you keep this little examine current events in... Have a discerning mind and ear. Listen, but at the same time, make sure you examine these current events in light of biblical prophecy. It is my understanding that if you're going to understand Matthew 24 and 25, you cannot do it without understanding these uh, three main points that, that he's writing about. Number one, Israel is in view, not the church. So 
Putting it another way, if you're looking for yourself or the church in Matthew 24 and 25, basically, you're not going to find her, okay? Now, we'll uh, make an exception to that uh, next week at the end when Christ comes back. But basically, for this time period, uh, you're not going to find the church. Number two, the tribulation period is the time, not the church age. So if you say, well, what does this have to do with today? In a sense, nothing. But it's preparing us for what lies in the future. And number three, the revelation or the second coming of Christ to earth is the event and not the rapture. Now, I put another little um, the flyer into your, into your bulletin, a new chart. And if you look at that for a minute, this gives you the chronological progress of Matthew 24 and 25. It basically says the same as I gave you last week, but this just now focuses in on Matthew 24 and 25, um, uh, 46. And so uh, this is taking you through the scene. Now you see right after the cross, you have the church age. That's where we're living. That's where we are today. That's been going on for 2,000 years. Could go on for another 2,000 years. We don't know. Could end today. So it's one of those things. There's no sign that has to precede that green arrow going up. That's the rapture of the church. Notice the church is caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And right after that, the man of sin, the Antichrist, the son of perdition, the lawless one, he signs a peace covenant with the nation of Israel. He promises them peace. And so finally there seems to be a solution to the turmoil in the Middle East that we've been talking about since 1948. He signs a covenant. So the first three and a half years is relatively a time of peace. But then in the middle with that red uh, marker up there, that's when the abomination of desolation takes place. The Antichrist now shows his full colors, not really a man of peace as he first proclaimed, but he's a man of war. And he sets himself up and demands the whole world worship him. Now that's why it's kind of significant today because some of these things can't happen overnight and where we see all these things building to a world order. Uh, all this has to be in place before these other things can take place. And the scene will be right. Just imagine the whole church is taken away in the moment, in the twinkling eye, just like that, it's gone. And imagine what's going to happen all around the world when they're going to want, what happened to these people? And so they're right for this man of peace. But then he turns and he demands that the world worship him. And then there'll be the, the sign of the seal of 666 on the forehead. And so it's going to be a terrible time those last three and a half years. And if it weren't for the shortening of the time, as we saw last week, uh, the whole human race, especially the Jewish people, would be annihilated. And so as the days are shortened, the Lord Jesus Christ, then in that purple arrow coming down, uh, returns. And that's what we're talking about today when he's, he comes back at his second coming. So let's uh, follow four movements in this text, and, um, and we'll take them one at a time. First of all, we see in verses 29 to 31 what I call the triumph of his coming. Now, unlike the rapture of the church, let me read the verses first of all. Immediately after the tribulation, verse 29, of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
Then will appear in heaven the sign of man, the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they'll gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. So unlike the rapture of the church, that's instantaneous and no one's going to see. It's just going to happen in the moment, in the, in the split second. Unlike that, this is going to be a visible and public event. Believers will see it and unbelievers will see it. Revelation 1.7 puts it this way. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, that would be the Jews. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. So the whole world will see the Lord Jesus Christ at his glorious second coming. The heavens will be ablaze with the glory of God. And listen to what uh, Haggai wrote about the Jewish prophet years before. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while will shake the heavens and the earth. The creator of the world, as it were, takes the, the heavens and the earth in his hand and he shakes them. Just like you shake a jar when you're trying to mix the elements. He shakes the heaven. He shakes the earth and the sea and the dry land. And he says, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory. Speaking of the temple, says the Lord of hosts. Now let me take you to a parallel passage of Matthew. It's Luke 21, 25, 26. He's, he's saying the same basic thing here, just a few different words. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That word fainting is an interesting word. It literally means to expire. It means to die. Did, did, did you ever say the expression or hear it said, man, I was just scared to what? Scared to death. This is reality. When people are living and everything is coming apart as it seems, people will be filled with such fear, I assume heart attacks. They're so scared. There's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to escape. The moon, the sun, the darkness, the shaking of the earth, earthquakes, calamity, and the Son of Man is appearing. The judge, the righteous king, the creator of the world, he's descending. And there's going to be fear in all their hearts. Then we come to the second coming itself, and he says, And there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, here's the answer to the question, the ultimate answer. What shall be the sign? Well, there's ten general. What shall be the sign? There's one very specific abomination of desolation, but we still haven't answered what is the sign of your coming. And you notice it's given right here uh, in, the, in the passage. 
Now, there's, there's a lot of different speculations as far as what the sign is, but being a very simple-minded man, I'm just going to take the word of what it says because it is, the sign is in apposition to the Son of Man so that the ultimate sign of Christ's second coming is the person of Christ himself. Now, that shouldn't surprise you too much. You remember when the Lord Jesus Christ came the first time, he said, and this shall be a what? Sign unto you. What was the sign? You shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. Remember, that was the sign. So when you go and you see this babe wrapped in swaddling clothes in Bethlehem, that is the sign, the ultimate sign of the first coming of Christ. And when you see the Lord Jesus Christ descending from heaven... That is the sign of the Son of Man's coming. That's the ultimate sign. A lot of previous general signs. This is the ultimate sign when the Lord Jesus Christ uh, descends. And I think rather than instantaneous, unlike the rapture that's just like that, that no one's going to see, here as we saw, every eye will see him. And I'm speculating here, so take it with a grain of salt. But I'm thinking it's going to be a slow descent maybe for 24 hours. I'm thinking all the satellite cameras, CNN, Fox News, ABC, CBS, NBC, all the news, they're all going to have the cameras on it. Imagine that event. Imagine being there and you're looking up and all the cataclysmic stuff going on, but you're seeing Jesus slowly descend on his great white horse, Revelation 19. And as we'll see later, not only him, but all the holy angels, tens of tens of thousands, the church coming back with him. The Old Testament says Moses, Abraham will be there. The tribulation period saints, here they come, led by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's going to be visible, and what a day that's going to be. What a day that's going to be. If I come to thinking, there's a song like that. What a day. Yeah, I won't do it. <laughs> it's visible. Secondly, it's victorious. Verse 29, and by the way, as you can tell, I'm going to try to get through this this morning, but I've got a bad chest cold, uh, so we'll, we'll get through it. Um, may make a little suffering for you to have to... Bear with me, but I know you can do it. Secondly, it's victorious. Verse 29 says this, and it will take place, notice, immediately after the tribulation of those days. <clears throat> now, we ask the question, well, tell me, Harry, what is actually happening on earth when Jesus Christ returns? And Matthew doesn't tell us, and Jesus doesn't tell us, but guess who tells us? A prophet by the name of Zechariah. And Zechariah, thanks, Doug, and Zechariah is one of my very favorite prophets in, in the Old Testament. And if you want to see what is actually taking place as Jesus descends, you turn to Zechariah 14, verses 1 and 2 in your scriptures, or it's page 799 if you have a copy of the Bible. Notice what he says. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken and the homes plundered, the women raped. 
Half the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So at the very descent of Christ, you have Jerusalem and the Jewish people under siege not only by Antichrist, but now all the forces, the kings of the north, the kings of the south, the kings of the east, unite with the, uh, the, the, the leader of the United States of Europe, and as one people who hate the Jewish nation, they come against her in this one climactic battle. There seems to be victory because verse 1 says, When the spoil taken from you who is divided in your midst, those two pronouns, you and your, refers to Jerusalem. And the taking of the spoil always happened in those days when a general would conquer a people and then they would plunder and take all their stuff. And then they walked with this through the streets in a victorious way, showing they had subjugated and defeated their enemy and taken all their stuff with them, plundering them. And that's what's happening here. And it looks like finally anti-Semitism at its very height has reached its goal, the destruction and annihilation of the Jewish people. Now what we know is behind all this, there's a sovereign providential God, amen? He's not taken by surprise. But there's two reasons why I think. Look at verse 2 where he says, I will gather all nations. Notice, he says, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem. Why does he do that? I think for two reasons. Often in the Old Testament, he used the Gentile heathen nations to purge out the, 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 the people of Israel. But number two, as we'll see next week, there's a second larger reason. Because as all the nations now come together to Jerusalem to battle, that's where the judgment of the nations is going to take place, and we'll see that, Lord willing, next week at the end of chapter 25. If I were to give one simple definition of the purpose of the seven-year tribulation period, three words would summarize it for me. It's a preparatory purging process. The Jews who have rejected their Messiah now at this time will be purged and prepared It'll be a process, seven years, in order that now when they see him, they will look upon him whom they have pierced, and all Israel shall be saved in one day. So it seems Jerusalem is the focal point at the end time war, and even though we often refer to Armageddon, Armageddon itself should never be seen as a battle. When you think of Armageddon, I want you to think of a campaign, not a battle, because uh, Armageddon is going to extend for 200 miles in its length, and it's going to stretch over the valley of Megiddo. I can't wait to, for us to take you there next year, to go to Israel and stand up on Mount Megiddo and look down and see the plain of Megiddo and the plain of Esdralon. Napoleon said, it's the greatest battlefield in all the world. <laughs> I did say last year, last week, I'm going to take you to Israel. And somebody said to the person sitting next to them last week, isn't he a generous man? <laughs> so I, I've, got, I've got to rephrase what I'm saying here. I'm taking you, but brother, you're paying your own way. 
But then you come to verses 3 to 4. Because God will not allow his people to be destroyed. He's made an everlasting covenant with Israel. An everlasting king, an everlasting people, an everlasting nation. As it looks like total annihilation, the Lord goes forth and fights for his people. Verses 3 and 4 of Zechariah 14. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, where he's given this very discourse. On that day his, his feet will light upon, can you see it? He's coming down. And all of a sudden, his feet light upon the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two. Tuck this one away for next week. To form a great valley from east to the west, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. No wonder it says in verse 30 of Matthew 24, Then shall all the tribes of the mirth mourn. What a day that's going to be. Do we have an indication when this is going to happen? Although it's true, no man knows the day nor the hour. Nevertheless, God has given us some truths to give us a general time frame. So we move to Matthew 24, 32 to 35. Point two is the timing of his coming. The timing of his coming. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Now, we're going to move quickly. Stay again with me. Fasten your seatbelt. Thirty years or so ago, Edgar Wisnett, probably most of you don't recognize his name today. It was a household name. He was a former NASA engineer scientist, and he turned into a, a prophetic teacher. He made a lot of money, dare I say several millions, when he wrote two books, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. How many years ago was that class? 20 years ago. And the second follow-up book, On Borrowed Time. He quotes Jesus' words in Matthew 24. Here's how he quotes them. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as it's twisty tender and the leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, I, Jesus, tell you the truth, this wicked generation, parentheses, 1948, birth of Israel to 1988, this generation, how long is a generation? 40 years. And so he takes the fig tree, as some do, to always be a symbol of the nation of Israel. Don't do that. Don't be stupid. Don't do that. You get into trouble like he did. He says these things will certainly not pass until all these things have happened. Many biblical scholars went to Edgar saying, Edgar, you're wrong. Don't make a fool of yourself. It spills over. People look at us Christians and say we're all crazy. People went out and they quit their jobs. They sold their homes. They did a lot of nutty things because they believed this teacher. Wisnet remained, remained undaunted. He says the evidence is all over the place that it's going to be in a few weeks anyway, whether you like it or not. It didn't happen, and that was 20 years ago. You see, in referring to the fig tree, the Lord was simply drawing a lesson and he was not calling attention to the fig tree itself as though the tree represented Israel. 
But if you look at Luke 21, 9, again, a parallel passage, he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and my boldness, my, my emphasis there, look at the fig tree and all the trees. So there you see he wasn't singling out just one. He's saying, look at all the trees around you. So that Christ is calling attention to a truth that was pictured by something that characterizes all trees. And during the winter months, the trees have no leaves. In the spring, don't we at Cape Cod look forward to seeing the little, uh, the, the little green shoots on any tree? What's it tell us? As soon as I start seeing those green shoots on the trees, I say, ah, spring is around the corner. Summer is coming. It's not long now. That's why I come home in March. <laughs> in April, excuse me. I, I lost a month there. Shame on me. That's why I come up from the south in April. I want to see the little shoots. I don't want to see the white stuff. So what is happening here is a process has begun that would eventuate in summer. Now, verse 35 adds to the absolute assurance what we have that these things will take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So the exact hour, the exact day is not revealed, but he assures us it will take place. And the general time period is the time period of those signs of the times. And the signs of the times are happening in the tribulation period. See, where Edgar was wrong, he didn't realize Israel's in view, not the church. Tribulation period, not the church age. Revelation of Christ, not the rapture. That's where he got all screwed up. And if you don't understand that, you can understand why he said what he did. And he was, he was I don't think he was a phony person just trying to make money. I think he was sincere. I think he believed it with all of his heart. But he was wrong. This passage of Scripture has nothing to do with 1948 and the establishment of Israel as a nation. He's talking about the nation alive the generation alive during the tribulation period that sees all these signs, that generation will not pass away until Christ returns. So the preaching of a fig tree representing Israel in 48 makes for popular preaching but lousy exegesis. Let's move on to point three, the type of the Lord's return. Now, beginning in Matthew 24, 36, Jesus discusses the when question. When specifically will he come? In other words, we see the general idea of the time period. But when specifically will he come? How many here would like to know when Jesus is coming? How many would like to know? The rest of you are not telling the truth. <laughs> we all want to know. We want to know the future. Wouldn't you love to know the day you're going to die? Okay, we'll go on to something else. So beginning in 36, verse 36, 24, and all the way down through Matthew 25, Jesus is dealing with when shall these things be. Now, look at Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So here's the key to the rest of that section. No one knows. The angels, Gabriel, no one knows. Well, surely the Son knows. No, the Son doesn't know. Well, who knows? The Father. You say, okay, when will this happen? What will be the date? What will be the day, the month, the year, and the hour? Verse 32, or 36 says, no one knows. Look at those first three words, no one knows. So if I were to ask you, class, when is Jesus coming? The answer is, no one knows. 
And any time a person comes to you and says, I know, write it down, he doesn't know. It's not true. Stay away from it. Don't buy it. Nobody knows. And if you get that, you're a lot smarter than a lot of other people. Many of you recognize the name of Harold Camping. Beginning in 1958, he served as president of Family Radio, a California-based radio station that broadcast to more than 150 markets in the United States. Camping received millions of dollars with his failed predictions of Christ's second coming while gaining a global following. Camping predicted the rapture would happen on May 21st, 2011. It didn't happen. Billboards all across America, as you see on the screen, it didn't happen. So after May 21st failed, Camping predicted up. He had just wrong a little bit. He predicted the rapture would occur on October 21st, 2011. I had to figure in Rosh Hashanah. October 21st came. It didn't happen either. He died in 2013. Just before he died, he said that to predict a date of Christ's return was not only wrong, it was sinful. And he repented of it. Now, before we leave verse 36, I've got to just take note of this because it will confuse some of you. Notice it says the Son, Jesus Christ, doesn't know the time of his own return. You say, how can that be? I thought Jesus was God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I thought he was deity. Well, you're absolutely right. I thought, well, then deity, he's omniscient, yes. Well, then if he's deity, he's, he's all-knowing, yes. Well, I remind you that when Jesus came to earth, he voluntarily laid aside the use of his deity. Philippians 2, 6, and 7. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So during his earthly ministry, Jesus knew what the Father wanted him to know, and he said what the Father wanted him to say, and he did what the Father wanted him to do. So that Jesus says in John 5, 19, so what he, truly, truly I say to you, the Son could do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing for whatever the Father does, that does the Son do likewise. So during Christ's earthly ministry, the Father did not want him to know the day of his second coming. And with that statement, he directs their thinking to the issue of when and tells them the day or the hour is unknown. But the generation alive in that tribulation period will see the signs and know they're living in the general time. And notice he says three times, if you look at verse 36, but turning that day and hour, no one knows. Jump over uh, to verse 42. You do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Look down to verse 44. You don't know at an hour. You do, the day, the hour, you don't know. But the general time period, you know because of the signs of the times. By the way, since he's been exalted at the right hand of God, I think today he knows. <laughs> Don't you? I mean, no longer is he laying aside the use of his deity. He knows all things now. And, and that full use of attributes of deity are his. He knows, brothers and sisters, when he's coming back. Now, as we come to verses 36 to 41, the Lord points out the similarity between the days of Noah and Christ second coming to earth in at least two ways. Notice, first of all, it was a day of selfish indulgence. It was a day of selfish indulgence. So we read, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the days of the coming of the Son of Man. What were the days of Noah like? 
Well, we talked about immorality, violence, and the earth rejection of the word of God last week, but that's not what he's talking about here. Lord Jesus, what were those days like? Verse 38, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so would be the coming of the Son of Man. The people living in the days of Noah, before the judgment of the flood, these people were so self-indulged, they ignored the truth. Noah's there hammering away. He's building an ark. They laughed, they ridiculed, they scoffed him. Why? It had never rained before on the face of the earth. They would come to him in 120 years. He must have been asked a million times, why are you building the boat? And that was the trigger. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming on this earth. And the people laughed and they mocked. And I'm sure the first time a raindrop hit somebody's nose, they thought a dinosaur behind them had sneezed. And they continued to laugh. That was the wicked day of Noah. Time doesn't permit. Second Peter 3, uh, uh, read it. It says right here, before the second coming, scoffers, re- people rejecting, laughing. People don't know Jesus is coming. I asked three medical personnel when I was getting some stuff done this week. I just had to ask. My mind was filled with this message. I said, how many of you know that Jesus Christ is coming back a second time? And they looked at me rather stunned. And I turned to the sweet little girl, just hired. I said, do you know it? She said, I've never heard that in all my life. The other two said, I've heard it. I said, are you ready? And then I had to leave. Part two, tomorrow morning. It's a society so filled with daily just stuff living. Giving in marriage, going to a wedding, having a toast. And then judgment comes. It's a warning to us that doesn't pertain to us. But don't take lightly who you are in Christ. Don't just go through life eating and drinking and giving in marriage and playing a game of golf and going fishing. That's another sermon. The point Jesus makes in verse 38 describes a society totally absorbed in its daily living and they've given no thought eternal issues secondly it was a day of sudden intervention these ten, two men are in the field one will be taken one left two women will be grinding at the mill one will be taken one left again I get so sick and tired of hearing and, and you know but God's used it God's used people who misinterpret the word to still accomplish his greater purposes amen all for years I heard when they talked about one shall be taken they said see there's the rapture the Lord comes in the air and he takes some up And he leaves others behind. And those are the people left behind. It's exactly the opposite of what he's talking about here, class. It's the opposite. It's like the days of Noah. Those who were taken, taken away, they were taken away into judgment. The ones ones here that he's talking about, 
Are ones taken away into judgment? A woman at the mill, a, a man. They're taken away to, to judgment. And the ones left behind are the ones who know the Lord and enter into the kingdom in their earthly body. They enter the millennial kingdom in that body of theirs. Then he goes ahead to show the analogy between Noah's day and the day of those people there. All the wicked taken away in judgment. And like Noah was left on the earth, the wicked would be turned away in judgment at Christ's return, righteous left behind. Teachings in light of his coming. Let's close that up. Or as my dear old friend said, bring it on home, brother, bring it on home. <laughs> Teachings in light of his coming. The little word therefore in verse 42 kind of sets the stage for the applications of the lesson from Noah. He gives two illustrations to drive home two teachings. One has to do with watchfulness. The other one has to do with faithfulness. First, there's the parable of the watchful householder. Therefore, stay awake. You don't know the hour your Lord comes, but know this, the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming. He would have stayed awake. Who went? If you knew a thief was coming to break into your house, you'd be alert, wouldn't you? You'd be waiting. You'd be watching for him. We would not let his house broken in there. You be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. So the owner of a house is likened to the fact of a thief who is coming. Having been warned, they should prepare themselves for his coming, even as the owner of the house is prepared for the thief's coming. Parable of the two servants, 45 to 51. It illustrates two attitudes men will have in the end time with relationship to the kings coming to earth to judge and reign. One will be characterized by faithfulness and wisdom, the other by wickedness. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household? To them, give them their food at the prophet. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, begins to beat his fellow servants, each drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day he does not expect in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. First is faithfulness and wisdom issuing good works. The evil man suffers the results of his deeds. Let's close it out. One of my heroes in life has always been General Douglas MacArthur. I loved reading his biographies. Read them years ago. Under the orders of President Franklin Roosevelt, he had to abandon the island fortress of Corregidor in World War II. He had to leave behind 90,000 American and Filipino troops who were lacking food, supplies, and support and would succumb to the Japanese offensive. Many of you remember reading about the Bataan Death March. That's when this happened, after the MacArthur left. When he arrived in Australia, he was informed there were no additional troops to return to the Philippines. Deeply disappointed, he issued a statement to the press in which he promised his men and the people of the Philippines, I shall return. The promise would become his mantra during the next two and a half years, and he would repeat it often in public appearances. Two years later, he was poised to launch an invasion of the Philippines. On October 20th, 1944, a few hours after his troops landed, 
MacArthur waded ashore onto the Philippine island of Leyte. That's where I took this picture a couple years ago when I was there. So moved by that. That day he made a radio broadcast in which he declared, People of the Philippines, I have returned. Only one-third of the men that MacArthur left two years earlier survived to see his return. He said this, I'm a little late, but we finally came. And for his valiant defense of the Philippines, MacArthur was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor and celebrated as America's first soldier. Jesus promised his disciples, I'm going to come again. Guess what? He will not be late. Not one second. And taking the words of Jesus himself, be ready. Know him. Be faithful. Serve him. Those last two applications, I can, with legitimacy, offer to you today in light of the rapture. Be faithful. Know him. Be serving. Know him, serve him. Don't be caught away with stuff. Be disciplined in your spiritual life, your church life, your service. You don't need to be golfing on Sunday morning. You don't need to be going out fishing. Don't treat it lightly. This is where you build up spiritual bones and flesh. This is where you prepare yourself for that great day when Jesus says, come on up here. You'll never have another opportunity to give another dollar. Don't be slothful in your giving. Be faithful. Be faithful in your service. Be faithful in your evangelism. Be faithful in your prayer life. Look up. He's coming soon. He's coming soon. Be ready. Be watchful. If you don't know him, I beg you, come to know him today. Judgment is coming for sure. And it could be your judgment, but it doesn't have to be. He's the Savior of all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I beg you, come to Christ. And if you know him, surrender to him. Holy Spirit, I beg of you to do what we can't do. Open that mind and heart to the truth of the gospel in Christ's name, amen.